You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise that you have gathered us together um, this morning and that you have given us this um, opportunity to reflect as always, and with, with utmost sincerity, most gracious God, um, we need to hear from you this morning. And I pray, in fact, that we will. And all this I ask and offer in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Yeah, please come on in, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as, we, uh, as we continue on here. So we're going to be looking at, uh, and they're independent of one another, so it's not as if uh, you have to make um, all of them, but... We're going to be looking at uh, some of the parables uh, of Jesus uh, and the parables of grace of Jesus and also the parables of grace is found in literature as well. It's, it's, um, it, it's enjoyable to, to, see, um, to see the message of the gospel portrayed uh, in different avenues. And so we're going to look at some of that this morning. And, uh, but also a, a word, make a word as well, and I reference this some. We're going to be looking at, at Luke's gospel. We Luke's gospel is the one that we're primarily hearing from now. And as I mentioned this morning, interestingly, so Luke 9 to Luke 19, there is, uh, there's a transition which takes place as Jesus makes his way uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem. And during that time, uh, they're going through uh, the land of the uh, Samaritans. And uh, at, at various times, his um, disciples um, offer Jesus, should, should we call down fire from heaven? Uh, upon the Samaritans. And thankfully, Jesus says, you know what, let's wait. Um, let's wait on the fire uh, from heaven as they make the way. But one of the things that's interesting in the midst of all of this um, hostility and in the midst of the, the cross, which is looming for Jesus, there is, um, there, there, there's a calm about Jesus. There's a peace um, about Jesus. And he, uh, and he teaches uh, and he equips and he prepares his followers and, uh, and gives words uh, of grace uh, in the midst of that context as well. And the parable that we're going to look at this morning, and it's kind of one of those, we'll see how this goes, um, is in Luke uh, 16. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We're not going to go there just yet. But it's the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, and it's one of those um, parables that leaves us um, scratching our head. As I say that to you, I don't know if you... Uh, from immediate memory, remember the parable of the dishonest manager. But it is a—it's a curious—it's a curious story um, which Jesus shares. But a, a few words as we as we enter in, and I'm going to share some also uh, from Flannery O'Connor's Revelation. Um, and uh, you know, I, I stay with hesitancy. I mean, obviously O'Connor is a writer uh, from another time, and uh, certainly um, in, in many ways uh, would not pass muster in our moment. But her short story, Revelation. If you're not from, has anyone read Revelation before? We're not judging you, um, the rest of you, exactly. So the, uh, a couple of you, well, that's good. So, um, uh, so this will be, in some ways, now you won't have to, uh, because I'm going to tell you about it this morning. So I'm going to save you, I'll save you the time, I'll give you the condensed version. But one of the things we have opportunity to do on Wednesdays is we have our day school. We have day school chapel, and um, we walk through the Sunday lessons uh, just like we do on uh, Sunday mornings here, but we do it on Wednesday. And we were recently reading Jesus's sermon um, on the plain. Uh, and of course, Jesus uh, shares some 
um, surprising words about what it looks like to be one of God's followers. And one of the things that we talked about in the context of the day school students, because some of them I know, in fact, my wife Paula's class has been learning about money. Um, so, you know, yeah, I know I see, uh, yeah, are your kids going through your change now, your nickels, your dimes? Yeah, exactly. Uh, a quarter, th- a quarter this morning. You know what? One of the kids in Paula's class actually recently came away with a twenty um, from the playground. So, um, so that's um, so. Any- anyway, um, so exactly. Some someone was um, someone was very happy. Someone was very sad. Um, just just recently. But one of the things we talked about with the day school, we were talking about Jesus's sermon on the plane is uh, is currency and economy. Um, you know, every every country and even individuals in relationships to some degree there's a currency isn't there there's there's value that we that we give to things and obviously in in countries we give monetary value to things and that 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 might be out of whack the value we give to things but things are assessed a value they're assessed a, a a price and so again the same is true often in relationships as well we give value um, to different things there's an economy to relationships and one of the things that we see at times as Jesus uh, is is teaching in his parables is of course he is turning the economy of the world upside down um, the economy of God's grace thanks be to God works dramatically different than the economy of the world uh, and the economy of God's relationship with you and with me um, works very differently often than the relationships of this world and again that's a that's a thanks be to God you know often in, often in the world um, it's it's a matter of quid pro quo. Uh, what what can you give me, and what do you expect from me um, in return? Uh, but the parables of grace uh, have a way of showing a dramatically different um, economy uh, of things. God extending grace and mercy and merit and, and favor to to a world that doesn't deserve it, um, and to individuals um, who who don't deserve it. Uh, and some of the uh, most beloved parables and stories which Jesus tells are, are found in this portion of, of Luke's gospel. And of course, uh, I think about Luke 15, and uh, this is kind of one of those uh, warm-up questions for us this morning. Uh, Jesus tells uh, a story of three lost things in Luke 15. Does anybody remember the three lost things? Yeah, the lost coin. Yeah, the lost coin, the lost uh, sheep, um, and, the, and the lost son, um, what we call the prodigal son. And interestingly, some commentators, and again, we're going to read this very curious parable uh, that Jesus tells in Luke 16. Uh, a number of commentators say that really the, there's, a, there's the division of the chapter from 15 to 16, but that, but, but that creates, um, it divides things which are intended to be joined together um, in this, because uh, of course the parable of the lost son the parable of the prodigal son is, is one that typically is, is a crowd pleaser, right? Um, all of us all of us like that one. And, and I think typically, too, we prefer to relate ourselves to the younger son rather than to the um, uh, grumpy and ungrateful older son. But if we're honest, too, there's a whole lot of the older son um, in, in all of us because um, sometimes, uh, well, let me ask you this. Um, have you ever been disappointed when someone receives mercy? <laughs> Does anyone here have siblings? Um, so, and if the answer to that is yes, then I can tell you, yes, you've been disappointed at one point or another when you saw mercy extended um, to someone when you would have much rather have seen, if, if not wrath, um, at, at the very least mild judgment. Um, so so I, I share that. But in, in Flannery O'Connor's story, Revelation, 
Uh, it, the main character is a woman by the name of Ruby Turpin. Uh, and uh, Ruby Turpin, uh, succinctly, she's a terrible person. Um, she really is. Um, she, she's, uh, she is racist. She is judgmental. Um, she is condescending. She is um, insincere. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm just warming up. Um, she's a lot of things. I mean, she is um, uh, Ruby, Ruby Turpin. Uh, Ruby Turpin is, is something else. I mean, again, she's sort of arrogant. She's intolerant. She's delusional, uh, racist, smug, self-righteous, condescending. Um, a couple of the things uh, is, is where we begin. And uh, O'Connor, I'll share a couple of quotes from her because she is... Um, uh, an interesting, an interesting writer. Of course, she was a uh, was a devout uh, Christian. Was uh, was a practicing uh, Roman Catholic. And one of the things she, because if, if you've read any of her stuff, it's often um, at times um, grotesque in the sense of exaggerated. Um, uh, her stories could be um, described in some ways as, as grotesque in the way that they're and the way that they're so exaggerated. And, and she, writes, um, she writes this, she wrote uh, any number of things, but the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it, um, is, is one of the things that she said and the way that she often cast a light on the human condition. But she said this, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large um, and startling figures. Um, and so that's what she does in her story, Revelation, as Jesus often does in the parable. Sometimes he uses startling um, images to capture um, our attention because we, uh, we, we get dulled. Um, we, we get dulled by the, the, the weariness and the challenges uh, of the world and our lives, uh, and we often need to be um, upset out of that. Uh, and there is a profound upsetting which happens uh, in the story of Ruby Turpin. Her husband, Claude, um, has been kicked by a cow. Um, so obviously this is from another time, another day. Claude has been kicked by a, a cow and they have gone to the doctor's office and they, she arrives at the doctor's office uh, and there is, there's one seat left in the doctor's office. And uh, of course she sits Claude since he's been kicked by a cow. Um, in, in the seat there, and she looks over to the sofa um, where there is a young boy sprawled out um, on the sofa and could easily move over to make room for her, of course, which he does not, and, and, and so it begins. Um, Ruby Turpin begins to judge and to classify all of the various people that are there um, in the waiting room. Uh, the man who is sitting in his chair pretending to be asleep so he doesn't have to get up, um, she judges, she classifies um, him for not getting up. Um, the various people there, the, the mother of the child who won't move over, the grandmother uh, of the child who won't move over. And then there's a woman um, who by her attire uh, is deemed uh, acceptable by her. And so she begins um, this, um, <laughs> this uh, I will read all of it to you, um, this smug, self-righteous conversation in the midst of a small waiting room. Uh, so they're at the doctor's office. You can imagine, you can, the, you know, the coffee table there, the old magazines. Um, it's small, and she's there in this um, in this office, and begins this um, just sort of loud uh, and incredibly um, smug and incredibly uh, condescending conversation with the woman that she deems uh, sort of uh, up to her uh, up to her standards. And the woman who is there that she deems up to her standards um, has a daughter with her. 
Uh, and of course, um, Ruby looks on her and, and, and judges the girl uh, because as she looks at the girl, Ruby says to herself, well, uh, I, I'm fat, but at least I'm not ugly, um, are the thoughts that go through her, through her mind. As I say, she's a love, um, Ruby. This is someone that, she really, um, that she'd really want to spend some time with. Um, and uh, it's interesting because the, the girl um, who will, and I'll read this in a moment, who will actually attack Ruby um, is the agent of grace. Um, the, the, the girl who will actually attack Ruby in this particular, in this particular story um, is the agent of grace. And, and you may think I'm reaching here a little bit, but, uh, but sometimes grace attacks us, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes it, it surprises us um, and, and it is uh, unsettling. And uh, so uh, Flannery, knowing that she has to draw large pictures for us to get it, um, the daughter's name is Mary Grace. Um, and Mary Grace is reading a book. Uh, and the book is entitled Human Development. Um, and so uh, you imagine in this small southern uh, town uh, in the doctor's office, and the mother says that she's at Wellesley, um, and she's home, and she's reading a book on human um, development and listening um, to Ruby and her mother. And uh, Ruby is surprised that she is, um, she is looking at her with a, a tremendous um, ferocity. Uh, and uh, she's looking at it with this tremendous um, ferocity uh, that then will boil over um, in, in just a minute. She notices, uh, she can't help but notice that this girl is looking at her and she tries to engage her in conversation uh, and uh, that doesn't exactly um, work out um, very well because we hear that um, she talks about, uh, yes, uh, how wonderfully grateful she is because the mother makes this comment um, directed toward the daughter about there's some people that just aren't grateful. Uh, there's some people in the world that have everything given to them, uh, a good education, <laughs> clothes to wear, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, the daughter is not missing um, who that she's talking about. And, and Ruby um, chimes in, if it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself, uh, and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition. Besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. I say, God, thank you, God, for making me me. I could have been someone else, but thank God uh, I, am, I am me, um, she says. Um, and, and, she, and, she, and she goes on and, she, and it says, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. And then... We read this, the book struck her directly over her left eye. Um, and so, so I'll, I'll, I'll continue on a moment. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, and then the next thing you know, the book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and Claude shout, whoa, there was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake. All at once her vision narrowed and she saw everything as if it were happening in a small room far away or as if she were looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope. Claude's face crumpled and fell out of sight. The nurse ran in, then out, then in again. Then the gangling figure of the doctor rushed out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way and that as the table turned over. The girl fell with a thud. And Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she saw everything large instead of small. 
the eyes uh, of the woman staring hugely at the floor. There the girl held down by one side by the nurse and on the other by her mother was wrenching and turning in their grasp. The doctor was kneeling astride her, trying to hold her arm down. He managed after a second to sink a long needle into it. Miss Turpin felt entirely hollow except for her heart, which swung from side to side as if it were agitated in a great empty drum of flesh. Somebody that's not busy, call for the ambulance, the doctor said in the offhand voice young doctors adopt for terrible occasions. Mrs. Turpin could not have moved a finger. The old man who had been sitting next to her skipped nimbly into the office and made the call, for the secretary still seemed um, to be gone. Uh, and and then, it, then, it, then it goes on, uh, and it says this, uh, the girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her. So this is... This is Mary Grace, uh, who, uh, after um, attacking um, Ruby, has apparently um, had uh, a seizure. The girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her. They seemed a much lighter blue than before, as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared, and her power of motion returned. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes there was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me, she asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure that her measure uh, had struck its target. Mrs. Turpin sank back in her chair. Um, so this is the this is the invasion of Grace, uh, which takes place um, in the story, and she is, uh, to, to, to say the least, um, rattled by this. But it's interesting. You hear that she, as, uh, as, as Ruby is looking at Mary Grace, she said it was as if she did know me. Um, she she did know me. She did. Um, see into me. She did um, see through me. These words uh, particularly pointed toward her. And then the story goes on and uh, she is, um, Ruby uh, is thrown into a crisis of faith. Um, she's thrown into a crisis of faith and she is, uh, she is wounded. Uh, her pride um, is wounded. Uh, and she goes down um, to the pig pen to uh, wash uh, the pigs uh, and, she, and she begins in an entirely biblical way, um, this conversation and argument with God. Um, this, and she said, why do you send me a message like that for? She said, and a low, fierce force, barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? Her free fist was knotted, and with the other she gripped the hose, blindly pointing the stream of water in and out of the eye of the old sow who outraged squeals she did not hear. The pig parlor commanded a view of the back pasture, uh, and she said, Why me? she rumbled. Why me? And then she goes on, and, uh, and then an interesting thing happens. It says, In the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. The pasture was growing a peculiar glassy green, and the streak of highway had turned lavender. She braced herself for a final assault, and this time her voice rolled out over the pasture. Go on, she yelled. Call me a hog. Call me a hog again from hell. Call me a wart hog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and bottom. 
A garbled echo returned to her. A final surge of fury shook her, and she roared, Who do you think you are? Is what, is what she asks of God. And then uh, O'Connor uh, goes on, and, and we hear this is, this is the end of the story. As the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture heretic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies for the first time in their lives, uh, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. So she has this um, vision um, given to her of, of the whole host um, entering into heaven, this, this grand and glorious vision uh, of all the people, and of course we hear to her surprise, um, the freaks and the lunatics are going before her um, and the others who are, um, who are, who are decent uh, and who she notes are alone on key um, as, they go in, as they go in singing. But I, uh, I, I share that with you and why I think it's uh, so very much a, a parable of grace that uh, O'Connor tells in this. Well, let me ask you this. You're welcome to agree or disagree. Do you find it to be a parable of grace? And if so, why? Yeah. Yeah, if she was, yeah, exactly, a parable of grace because she was hit in the head uh, with the truth. A absolutely. And once again, yeah, we can't, we can't miss. <laughs> God sort of, as God graciously does, sometimes God whispers, sometimes God shouts. Sometimes God nudges, and sometimes we're hitting the head with a book. Um, exactly, yeah. So very much a parable of grace, um, as as God reveals as God reveals truth. Uh, but again, it's uh, I think very much a parable of grace in the sense of um, uh, oftentimes she had this uh, order of value constructed, um, the sort of value the people that were more valuable than others, and of course. Um, let me ask you this, if one of the things it says in the story, it, sometimes when she couldn't sleep, she would go through her mind thinking about the different classes of people and where she fit um, in them. Uh, does that sound restful? <laughs> I, think, I think we can agree um, that, that that doesn't sound the least bit restful if your cousin was, so, so where do I fit into? Um, how am I measuring up? How am I, how am I making my way? Uh, and again, with with sort of a, a loving and gracious violence um, that is blown up in her life, uh, that is, is unsettled. Uh, and she goes through, yes, this, this period of, uh, of, of struggling as um, all of her false economy has been undone. Uh, 
And that's a gift, but it's initially unsettling as all of her false economy um, is undone and, and she gives, she receives a divine economy. And at, and at the end, I think it's very much of grace because um, she receives this incredible vision. She receives this incredible vision that she doesn't deserve. <laughs> That God graciously, in, a, in response to her shaking her fist at God, in, in, in response to her railing um, against God, God doesn't return in kind. Uh, what she receives is this incredible vision uh, of, God's, of God's grace. Uh, maybe the order uh, that we, the last, are, the last are first and the first are last. Uh, her economy has been flipped and turned inside out and upside down, and, and yet God has not forsaken her. Um, in this moment, uh, God has unsettled her for a reason uh, to give her something which is infinitely greater to to shine a light um, on the divine economy. Simul Eustace et Peccator is one of the Reformation sayings, uh, simultaneously saint um, and sinner, simultaneously um, sort of sinful and, and justified. Um, uh, I heard someone commenting on this. Some um, simul used to said warthogus. Um, so simultaneously justified um, and yet um, warthog from hell um, as as well. So there's uh, there's a little intro um, there through uh, through Ruby Turpin and uh, one of the wonderful things and it, and it leads me to this Luke 16. And if you have your Bible um, with you, um, you can uh, you can open it up. And it's funny too because. Um, one of the things I thought about as I'm reading the story, and of course, it's so easy to judge Ruby Turpin, right? Um, I mean, she is just so clearly, evidently um, self-righteous. It's it's like the story um, of the uh, of the sinner, uh, the tax collector, and the Pharisee who go to the temple to pray, uh, and the t- and the Pharisee says, "You know, I'm so glad I'm not like this tax collector." And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I'm so glad uh, God didn't make me like Ruby Turpin. Um, and I'm thinking, maybe I've got a little Ruby um, in me as I'm, as I'm thinking about that. But 16, let me read it to you. Some commentators describe it as, as the hardest parable. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager um, for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. (laughs) What do you make of that one? Uh, uh, I see a volunteer back there. Yeah, to go ahead and explain. Is that uh, confusing? Would we would we agree that that's confusing? Um, perhaps a little offensive um, is is as well. Um, 
I mean, what, what, what in the world, uh, what in the world um, is, is Jesus talking about? Well, one of the things about the parables, one of the gifts about the parables is one of the things, well, one of the things we sometimes um, say incorrectly about the parables are these, there are these fabulous stories that Jesus tells that make everything clear. <laughs> And I think we can agree that that's not always true. Uh, and certainly when we read one like this, we're like, all right, that uh, things seem to be uh, a lot muddier um, than, than clearer after, after I read that one. But one of the great things about the parables is that they force us um, to engage. One of the things that the parables do is they invite us into a relationship. Uh, they invite us into a relationship with Jesus. Let's say some of them seemingly are, are, are pretty straightforward. Uh, and, and, and yet, some of them, some of them less so, uh, and some of them, they're, they're layered. Uh, there's, there's sort of the initial um, clarity of it, but then as we, as we spend time with it, as we um, spend more time with it, we find out that there's more to it in different ways um, that it can be seen, more that it has to say to us than what was immediately um, apparent. But one of the great things about the parables, like any relationship, um, they, they call us to engage. Um, and uh, as you know, uh, from relationships in your lives, some of the valuable relationships. Well, let me ask you, um, do you always understand your spouse, regardless of how long you have, uh, you have, uh, you have, it, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? You could have been together for decades, um, and sometimes you look at your spouse and say, I have no idea um, where you're coming, I have no idea where you're coming from, <laughs> or your, or your parents, um, or your children or your siblings, you know, you thank you, uh, your, your, the, the people um, that are your brothers and sisters in Christ at the church. I mean, you, sometimes you just find yourself so absolutely um, shocked by these people. And, and, and yet, in that engaging, in that relationship, um, we find ourselves uh, drawn, uh, drawn deeper in relationship with one another, um, often as we, uh, as we contend with one another. One of the things I mentioned to you, so here's the, here's the story um, and there's a couple of different takes. Uh, you know, one we can say, interestingly, so the, the, the steward um, is called to account uh, because he's been wasting his master's possessions. So that's, that's, the, initial, that's the initial crisis. Um, someone tells on him. Someone tells on him that he's been wasting um, the master's possessions, and so he's called in um, to give an account. And interestingly, um, the word which is used um, for wasting uh, his master's possession. Again, I mentioned to you uh, a number of commentators see a, a false division between chapter 15 and chapter 16. Again, at the, at the end of chapter 15 um, is the story of the prodigal son. And if you remember, what, what did the young son do? Um, he, wa he, wa he, wasted his, he wasted his inheritance. All of this had been um, all of this had been given to them. All of this had been entrusted to him. This relationship with the father um, had been entrusted to him, and, and he wasted it. Uh, he, he wasted his father's possessions, and, and we read, as Jesus tells the story, that he's away, and he's in a, and he's in a distant land, and he realizes, um, he realizes that he's out of options. Um, he's, he's starving. He would have uh, gladly um, a righteous Jew eating the food that the pigs were eating. Uh, that's, that's how desperate things had come. And he has this epiphany that he will return to his father and say, you know, father, I'm not 
worthy to be called your son, uh, but make me one of the servants in your house, because even the servants in your house have enough to eat and, and, and then some. I, I'm, I'm lost. Basically, what happens to the son is he's away and he's wasted um, all um, of the father's possessions, wasted everything that's been given to him. Uh, in many ways, what happens is he dies. I mean, he doesn't die, obviously, literally, but he, but he realizes he's dead in the water. He realizes he's dead in the water, and that's, that is the crisis. Uh, that's the that's the crisis um, which takes place. Um, that that's that's the grace. Uh, the, often the first way that it works is it throws us into it throws us into crisis, um, and and we see that he returns um, to the father. Uh, he has the sense to return to the father. He knows uh, he knows the nature and the character of his father, uh, even though quite frankly he underestimates um, the nature and the character of the father. We see that in the father's response. Uh, he thought the father was going to be just, but we see that the father is more than just. The, the father is, is gracious beyond mere justice. Uh, but that word, wasting, is the same word which is used um, of the steward here. And again, there's different, uh, inter- shocking, different interpretations of this. Some see the steward um, uh, as uh, wearing a white hat, uh, and some see the steward as wearing uh, is wearing a black hat. But one of the things that we see happen to the steward is, is this, um, is, uh, is in essence, uh, the, the means of grace is, is more often than not, it's our death. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about simply um, our, our physical death, but when we realize we're out of options. Uh, and so the steward is suddenly dead in the water and he realizes um, that he's dead in the water. He, he has no other option um, but to appeal, appeal to the mercy um, of the master. And then shockingly, surprisingly, um, what we see happening here um, is, is rather than rebuke, um, we, see a word, uh, we see a word of praise. For the sons of this world are, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation uh, than the sons of light, uh, is what he says. And I want to read to you now, um, this is a great uh, book here, Kenneth Bailey's Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it's, um, it, it's really helpful because one of, we were talking about this particular parable in a men's Bible study the other day, and you might imagine it, it led to some very um, lively discussion and differing uh, opinions on this. But it was interesting, one of the things that one of the guys in the room said was, you know, I wonder if this is one of those parables that the people of Jesus' day got with no problem um, but we struggle with it in our day. Um, you know, for the people of that time, that place, that culture, this would have been clearer to them than it is um, to you and to me because uh, I think we, you and I first and foremost approach it from a, from a morality perspective, right? I mean, you think about this morally and you just think, well, wait a minute, this guy's dishonest. He shouldn't be, um, he shouldn't benefit. Uh, he shouldn't benefit from, from dishonesty. But let me read to you um, a couple of things that Bailey has to say about this. Uh, and as I say, it's um, really, this is, if, if, if you're interested, this is, this is a good book. Um, uh, this is a bo- good book. I'm going to read to you a few things. Uh, but one of the things he says is this, is by the fourth century, the parables of the unjust steward and the prodigal son were separated by a chapter division. If the monks who established those divisions had kept the two parables in the same chapter, the entire history of the interpretation of Luke 16, 1-8 would be different. The two parables have a significant number of parallels, and these are some of the ones I've been mentioning to you. Each has a noble master who demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward underling. Both stories contain an ignoble son, steward, who wastes the master's resources. 
In each, the wayward underling reaches a moment of truth regarding those losses. In both cases, the son steward throws himself on the mercy of the noble master. Both parables deal with broken trust and the problems um, resulting from it. These, parable, these parallels suggest that the parable of the unjust steward needs to be examined in the light of what precedes it. I am convinced that this parable continues to discuss theological themes that appear in the parable of the prodigal son. The subject is God, sin, grace, and salvation, not honesty um, in dealing with money. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, he said it's about something else. It's about something larger than just a literal uh, a literal moralistic approach to um, looking at this. But this is, uh, I want to say this to you and share with you what he has to say. Uh, one of the things as we think about this, and I, shockingly, I don't think you're going to walk out and say, thank God Craig made that all clear um, this morning. And, and now I've, uh, but again, wonderfully, it invites us to uh, engage. And I invite you to sort of uh, engage and read this in, in light of some of the things which have been said this morning and contend with some of these things. One of the things that he makes mention of is uh, the steward, uh, one of the things that's praised when the steward realizes that he is dead in the water, uh, he, uh, rather than capitulating, he, he takes the next step. And in many ways, what he does is he throws himself um, on the mercy of his master. Uh, I mean, you could, you could argue one of two things. You could argue he just does it and thinks maybe the master won't notice. But more than likely, um, he realizes and appeals to the mercy of the master. And uh, uh, Bailey says this, the master pays the price of the steward's salvation and commends him for his mental agility. I think that's interesting. Who pays the price? Uh, who, and that's, that's the story of God's grace, isn't it? Who pays the price? It's the master um, that pays the price. The, the steward receives a mercy that he doesn't um, deserve, uh, and there's a cost to it. Uh, and the cost is paid um, not by the one who is liable, who's guilty, um, but the cost is paid um, by the master. And he goes on and he, he says this. Um, but at the end of the story, Jesus calls him a son of this age um, world. He is smart enough to know that his only hope is to put his entire trust in the unqualified mercy uh, of his generous master. You know, again, in the whole stuff from, from O'Connor, it's, it's just the opposite. She's, I mean, she says that she's thankful to God, but really she's thankful that she is who she is, who's good enough. Um, and, and then, of course, wonderfully, um, the object of grace, the hurled book, comes at her to help her um, see the actual divine and freeing economy. But he says this, he's smart enough to know that his only hope is to put his entire trust in the unqualified mercy of his generous master. His morals are deplorable. Nonetheless, Jesus wants the sons of light to use their intelligence like the dishonest steward and to trust completely in the mercy of God um, for their salvation. The prodigal son made a similar um, decision. It's, uh, it's time. Uh, thank you for your uh, patience today, your engagement. Let me um, pray for us as we go forth here. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, the means of our hope and our salvation uh, are, are by your grace, given to us in Jesus, your Son, Help draw us um, to you, to engage with you, to contend um, with you, to um, enter into this relationship where we might be shaped and fashioned by you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.